As it is, uh, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for speaking your word, uh, for giving us something that we can't stand forever on, um, and we are hungry for it, having been in the world where everything withers, everything fades. Uh, Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to come to you and receive from you something that truly stands forever. So, Lord, let that shape us into your image, uh, into your likeness, and conform us uh, to the image of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. So we're continuing our series uh, in pursuit of a healthy church, and last week we talked about we talked covered the topic of Christians in conflict, and this week um, the topic of Christians in community. Uh, one of the best known metaphors for the church comes from this passage in First Corinthians twelve. The church is the body of Christ, and Christ being the head of the body. Okay. And Paul does something interesting here. Uh, in describing the essence of the body of Christ, what is indispensable to this community, um, this community of Christian believers, he chooses to highlight the weak, the less honorable, and the unpresentable, and says they are actually the indispensable, uh, those who should receive greater honor, those with greater presentability. That's what the word modesty means, as in people worthy of more attention. Now, First thing we should point out about that is just how counterintuitive that is, right? Uh, the idea that it is essential to the health of the church not to gather the strong, isolate the weak, but instead for the weak to become more prominent and honored and attended to. The world's logic is highlight the strong, uh, hide, cover up the, the weak, draw all the attention away from the weak, and the unattractive and focus on the strong. That is not biblical logic, is it? Uh, That is not how a biblical community is run. In Paul's description of the body of Christ, it's the weaker that are indispensable, the less honorable that get the greater honor, the unpresentable that get more attention and attraction. And he says in verse 24, God has so composed the body, as in this is his will. This is how God desires to build up his body. And so as counterintuitive this is to us, we do need to put aside our, our likes and dislikes for a moment and lean into what is God's heart? What's his, what's his intention? What is his will when it comes to building up a healthy church as he defines it? Okay. So with that in mind, I want to unpack this passage with you today and explore um, who Who are the weak, the less honorable, or the less presentable? How are we to draw near to them? And why? 
And finally, what might that look like if we strive to do that, all right? Who are they? How and why do we draw near to them? And what does that look like if we were to even try? Okay, four questions there, right? So that's our outline for today. So let's first ask who. Who are the weak, the less honorable, and the unpresentable? Well, as we look at this passage, what's clear is Paul is speaking about relationships in community, meaning when he talks about the weak, he's talking about the relationally weak. Uh, What might that mean? I think you can begin to think about that more in broader terms, less technical terms, and then maybe slightly more technical terms. Broadly speaking, generally speaking, uh, these are people who have great difficulty fitting in. Okay, great difficulty fitting in. Those who find community living, relationship building, very challenging. Maybe on a slightly more technical level, um, they social, cultural uh, reasons, they find a community to be uh, even fearsome and, and, and anxiety-inducing. They are what might be called social and cultural outliers among us. Uh, they're unfamiliar feel strange, um, feel disconnected, feel a lot of discomfort when they're around others. There's this great obstacle in their minds when it comes to engaging relationally with, with people. There are also those who feel not as well assimilated into the majority culture, whatever that majority culture may be, and they feel like they're part of that minority and therefore an outlier. And so another obstacle there being more cultural. Um, and still there may be those who have experienced past hurts and wounds um, that lead them to feel a lot of hesitance when it comes to forming new relationships. There's an emotional or experiential obstacle uh, when it comes to community building. Scripture itself describes a lot of relational outliers uh, using terms like exiles, aliens, sojourners, Gentiles. And there are various outliers in their context who are left out in the margins for various social, cultural, political, economic, religious reasons. For our purposes today, uh, the term that I would like to use that can can maybe encompass all these categories, maybe the word outlier, and and focusing particularly on relational outliers. And Paul is in, in various ways speaking of relational outliers here in this passage, and even more narrowly, relational outliers within the church. Uh, They are the weak, the less honorable, and the unpresentable in the body of Christ. They're there. Now, the truth is, you can feel like an outlier uh, for any number of reasons. It could could maybe even appear silly to other people, the reasons that you may have for feeling like an outlier. I have something like a half curly hair. and when I behold my fellow brothers with straight, sporty hair, uh, I feel like an outlier. I do. Uh, I'm okay. Jesus is comforting me. But it, it's something I'm working on. Um, I feel like I'm a terrible dancer. So I, I feel like an outlier at parties or at weddings. Uh, I don't have a college basketball team to root for during March Madness. I finished college in, in Korea. That makes me feel like an outlier. Um, the list goes on. And you may have your list of things that make you feel like an outlier. You may not feel like you're tall enough, um, you know, 
what kind of job you have, whether you have a job, what kind of college you went to, whether you went to college, what sort of family dynamic you have, family history you may have, and um, any physical or medical conditions you may have may make you feel like an outlier. We all know what it's like to feel like a relationality because we, we've lived through it. A lot of us lived through that experience ourselves. Um, another reason why we are pretty familiar with what relational allies are is because we know what it's like to relate to them. And, and we've all felt, along with that, the burden and the discomfort and, and the awkwardness that comes with interacting with or trying to interact with relational outliers. They're not always easy to interact with, are they? It's taxing, it's challenging, at, even frustrating at times. Why? Because with relational outliers, right, your investment into your, the relationship, it's not always reciprocated, right? Uh, the, the effort you put into drawing near to them can often feel like a waste of time. We all know to some extent what trying to love relational outliers feels like. It's, it feels extremely challenging and difficult. Right? So those are our experiences and um, our personal experiences and also our relational experiences. But here's the thing. It's so clear in scripture that it is drawing our attention more to these relational outliers, not away from them. As much as we would like to remove ourselves from this, scripture is calling us to turn towards them and draw nearer to them and even become one with them. This is how our passage begins and ends. Verse 20, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. And notice how here, right, the plural is becoming singular. Many becomes one. Individual members become one body. And God says, do that, but start here. Start with those who are in the margins. Start with those who are in the fringes of your community. Be one with them. Draw near to them and, and draw them in. I think Jesus essentially said the same thing if you parallel the two passages in, in Matthew 25. Uh, where he says, on the last day, he will say to some, when I was weak, you didn't come to my aid. When I was dishonored, essentially, you didn't seek to honor me. Uh, when I was unpresentable, unattractive, you, you ran from me, you abandoned me. And, and people will say to Jesus, when did we see you, Jesus, uh, uh, weak and dishonored and unpresentable? And Jesus will say, um, they were always around you. They were me. And when you ignored them, you've ignored me. When you've isolated them, you've isolated me. I think he might say, if the way that you've treated them as a waste of your time and energy uh, is was really how you treated me. You treated me as a waste of your time and energy. God gives us a very sort of clear marker for identifying the true body of Christ. It's evidence in the way we treat the weak, the less honorable, and the unpresentable. Whether we are bringing community to those who are too weak to bring it to themselves. Uh, whether we are making uh, loving the least of these uh, our greatest priority in Christian fellowship. And, and, and that has to be uh, very much a part of how we understand the weak, the less honorable, and the unpresentable uh, they are the least of us. 
they are the less capable of us, relationally speaking, the more disconnected from us. They are who these people are. And that leads us then to the, the second and third question of, okay how, okay, how do we begin to draw near to them and, and why? Uh, well, the first answer to the how question is really, it's actually digging a bit deeper into the who. Uh, and we can start here with verse 21, where it says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The first step in drawing near to each other, according to Paul, is for the eye to see the hand, and, and kind of see it as a hand, first and foremost, <laughs> distinct from the eye, and for the head to see the feet as well, in the same way, distinct and different from the head. They are to see others and identify each other as unique, distinct parts of the body that are indispensable uh, to one another. Uh, put it differently, the eye is not supposed to say to the hand, why are you not more like the eye? Or, or the head st stare at the feet and go, why are you not more like the head? One thing this means on a relational level then is when we interact with one another, we don't presume or assume to know all that there is to know about someone based on what we know about ourselves. But not assuming that their experiences and their stories are identical to ours. And then drawing near to them, seeing them for who they are, and as a result of that, seeing them more fully and truly. David Pollison has, has a great illustration uh, of this in his book, Seeing with New Eyes. He tells the story of one day noticing a very disheveled man, stranger, just pacing through his neighborhood right outside of his house. Uh, he had this wild, disturbed look on his face, uh, kept yelling as he walked up and down the street. He was yelling, okay, okay, okay. And after walking around the neighborhood erratically, uh, this man proceeded to enter their backyard and other, the neighbor's backyard and convinced that this is a madman on the loose. Uh, Paulus and he calls 911. And when the police um, pulls up to this man who was on the sidewalk at this point, um, still erratic, still yelling, okay, okay. He, Paulison opened his window just to listen in on the conversation and he heard the police officer ask the man, can I help you, sir? And, and the man says to the officer, oh, officer, I'm so glad you're here. I just lost my little puppy and he doesn't know this area and I'm worried sick. And the puppy's name is Jose. Would you keep an eye out for him? And Paulison just felt terrible about calling the police on him at that point. Uh, when he was not yelling okay erratically, but looking for his puppy, Jose. <laughs> now, Paulison was working with some facts though, wasn't he? Uh, this man is erratic, he looks disturbed. He's yelling out something that rhymes with okay. Uh, but the problem was he was working with limited facts. He had facts, but they were limited facts. But when he went beyond that, did more data gathering, when he goes beyond his assumptions about what's going on, what happened? Everything changes. Uh, he didn't have to feel threatened. He could have felt compassion instead. He didn't have to call 911. He could have offered help. Uh, what, a, what a drastic difference in attitude in posture, uh, just 
by gathering a bit more data, withholding uh, your assumptions. So when we withhold assumptions, listen a bit more, gather a bit more data, right? Uh, okay can, can change into Jose, or Jose into okay. Uh, feelings of threat can turn into feelings of compassion. And the impulse to call 911, like as if you're in danger, can turn into an impulse to help and extend your hand. And here are some other things that will naturally follow from that. Um, one of the first things that this kind of compassionate posture, humility towards your neighbor will teach you is that those who you identify as relational outliers are most often not so by choice. There are reasons personal, circumstantial, situational reasons, experiential reasons beyond their control. For some, it's more personal. They have social anxiety. They have this fear of rejection, having suffered rejection in the past that hinder them from entering new experiences, new relationships. Some of them have past wounds, deep wounds, traumas from the past they're still recovering from. Some have intellectual and um, developmental disabilities. And still for others, it's simply a uh, disposition or personality trait to be either more shy or more confrontational. Either way, you become more distanced from, from people. For others, the reasons are more circumstantial. Right? Um, some are not as active in community life because for the simple reason that they don't have a car or a car that doesn't break down every other day. They can't afford a new one. Uh, some have to work on weekends, two shifts to pay their tuition and bills. Uh, some have newborns that need 24-7 attention from their parents or else they die. <laughs> and they're just complete, parents are completely drained of their social energy. There's nothing left. So whether it's more for personal or circumstantial reasons, they are not relational outliers by choice. And the first step towards drawing nearer to them is understanding that about them and seeing them more fully and therefore more truly. Another effect of this compassion and humility towards our neighbors is how we speak about them. How do we speak about relational outliers? With what tone do we even raise the question, why are they this way? Why do they behave the way that they behave? It will not be asked in the way that <laughs> Michael Scott asks Toby Flenderson, why are you the way that you are? I so hate the way that you are. There's zero curiosity there. And it's all coming out of, it's a rhetorical question asked out of judgment. That tone will change. Even the question will change when you approach someone with compassion and humility instead. It will go from something more pointing outward to pointing inward. How can I help this person in need? How protect, pro proactive have I been in serving this person? It, it changes from why are they to how can I? And in all of this, guys, what we're really being reminded of here is something that God has really been teaching us from the very beginning regardless of how people may behave and how difficult it may be to draw near to them, deep down, everybody longs for and craves community because they're created in the image of a relational triune God, and we should see them as such. There's a safe assumption you can make about anyone and everyone, 
And this may be the only safe assumption to make about anyone and everyone, and that is that they are created in the image of our relational and triune God, and it is not good for them to be alone. The blueprint of their heart shows a longing, a deep longing for relationships, even if they are terrible at it. And so the call from God in our, in our passage, and really the rest of Scripture, is, is the same. Because God made us originally for such a humanity, human community, he caused his new, saved, redeemed community, the church, to be the pointer back to this reality now in Christ. Because now we have the power to overcome all that sin causes uh, to divide community, to create conflict in community. Now we have a, a, a way of creating a united, caring community that reverses the effect of sin, all by the power of Christ. And that's also our how. How we draw near to each other and draw each other in, especially those who are in the margins, those who are less honored, less presentable, less recognized, less known, less attractive. All right, now, here's the third question, but why? Uh, why must we do this? Uh, whence cometh such a duty? Uh, why can't we just pursue the average, ordinary, relational life of finding some compatible people with we click with and lean into that because we only have so much time as is, we barely have enough time for that. Uh, why? Must we go out of our way, invest our time and energy into relationships that could potentially bring us no return? Uh, bring only discomfort, awkwardness, confusion, offense, rejection. Why go where there is no guarantee of reciprocity or immediacy in terms of relational success or improvement? Why? Why even go there? And to use uh, common sense logic, the world's rationale, the answer is you have no reason to go there whatsoever. But to answer that differently, as we recall who we are speaking to and who we are speaking as, then we have a different answer. We're speaking as a specific, unique, particular community, the one and only community like this on this planet, and that is the body of Christ, uh, where... <laughs> A community of people says, uh, we belong to Jesus, and therefore his will, his logic, his principle, his heart. We're called to his kingdom, and, and he is our king. That is our why. That is our rationale. Uh, our trust and allegiance is in the one who came to save weak, dishonorable, and unpresentable before God people like you and me not judging or condemning us, isolating us, staying comfortably in his, in his kingdom, but coming to us, becoming one of us, identifying with us, uniting with us. John says in his gospel, Jesus pitched a tent and dwelt among us. Uh, why? Because we can't pitch a tent with him. Uh, we can't achieve that community with the Trinity. So what did God do? He, he brings Trinity to us. Uh, the likes of us, even. People who can't participate, who can't contribute, who can't reciprocate. But he brings it to us anyway. If your faith is in that, 
If, you, if your faith is genuinely in such a savior, then you will respond to his call to do the same for your neighbors. The answer to our why is because being saved means this, Christ lives inside of me. And if he lives inside of me, I have the relational power source I did not previously have uh, to draw near and draw in relational outliers, people who are in the margins and the fringes, the people who only take and take and take from me. He has given me such a great relational power in Christ. And, and you have to forgive me for this, with great relational power comes great relational responsibility. Truly, God has given you an infinite source of relational power in Christ. Are you using it at all? He has given us this incredible power, even, even the power to be self-forgetful servants because of his remembrance of us. One definition of a true servant is someone who is self-forgetful. A true servant is someone who's without self-pity. Jesus said, serve one another as I have served you. And a true servant would say, that's enough reason for me, Jesus. You have served me. You have served me. There is no self-pity there. Think about Jesus on, on Good Friday uh, when he was about to drink the cup of God's wrath for his friends. And, and the only thing he asks of them at, in his dying hour is, just, can you just pray with me for a little while? Right? Just pray for me as I wrestle with this infinite suffering that I'm about to consume for you. And what do his friends do? They fall asleep. Uh, and, and soon after that, they abandon him completely. And soon after that, his best friend basically denies him three times. How does Jesus respond to that? Does he respond with, oh, poor me, oh, pitiful me, after all I've given to them, this is the treatment I get? He doesn't say that. What does he do? He serves them still and goes on the cross. This is the service you've received and I've received. And if we believe that, if you genuinely believe that, there's no room, no room for self-pity. Only room for more compassion and more self-forgetful service to our neighbors, even to those who are difficult to love, difficult to relate to. We can draw near still and draw them in. That's our why. Okay, let's consider this last question then. Uh, what does that look like? What does this look like as we draw near, draw in the relational uh, outlier? Well, there's a slight danger in asking this question, actually. And that is turning our focus not on serving relational outliers, but eliminating them. Eliminating relational outliers, being so good at drawing them in, being so successful at it, at some point, we don't have them anymore. What happens then is we've seeped in then to the church the, the world's logic of if I put in this much effort, I should get much, much, this much in return. We're back to square one. Um, 
we said we don't operate by king, uh, by the world's logic. We operate by by kingdom logic, and so we don't operate with. If I do this much to contribute to a thriving community, will I get this much in return? In other words, what will work? What can I start doing now that will prove to be successful as a, as a methodology? Um, but that's not what we're doing here. And if we're truly operating by God's kingdom logic, then our assessment, our measurement of effectiveness, or what is successful, it also has to be something not conformed to the world's measure, standards of measurements, right? How does God see it? The first thing we have to understand when it comes to the what, what does this look like? We have to realize there is no formula. Uh, there is no program we're supposed to launch to undo this. To, to eliminate relational outliers in our midst and to turn them into insiders. There's no strategy. There's no studies have shown that th this has produced such and such outcome. There's nothing like that because here's the thing. Our ultimate goal in the kingdom of God is not success, but your Christ-likeness, regardless of the outcome. Our goal is Christ-likeness towards our, our neighbors. It's Christ-like service. And when you begin to turn your focus on that, uh, we have something we can work with then. Uh, we can then begin to imitate the service of Christ in our midst and seek to participate in all the things and only the things that the head of our body, right, the body of Christ, would have us do can be, begin imitating him. And, and we can start here. We can start with what Philippians 2 tells us. We can begin by imitating Christ by laying down our relational power and our rights for the sake of the relational outlier, for the sake of the relationally weak. We can consider as individuals, for those who are married as households, how can we begin to lay down our relational powers and our rights as Jesus is described to do in Philippians 2, and make ourselves a more complete and Christ-like servant for others. What would that look like for me and for my household? Now, here's what happens. As soon as you start investigating that, your Christian discipleship is activated. Uh, Christ suddenly is not just your ticket to heaven. You actually need him in this area of weakness you have to live out his mission on a day-to-day -day basis you activate discipleship. And in your daily reflection and your prayer, you begin to lean into him for the strength you need when you're relationally weak to serve those who are weak. Strength from him to see who are the relational outliers around me. And, and, and strength to initiate something towards them to draw near to those who are alone, to those who are isolated, to those who are unknown. Strength to patiently listen to their story and get to know them. Strength to empathize and sympathize with those who feel like a minority in a majority culture. Those who feel like they have no good, interesting, impressive thing to offer and those who feel like they're not presentable, to draw near to them and present them as presentable. Strength to do that. You begin to ask Christ for the strength and the courage you need to identify and then initiate. Identify and initiate. Identify them when you're 
in the church lobby. Identify them at our church outings. Identify them at the next community group. Identify them at basketball or volleyball. And initiate. Initiate a greeting. Initiate an icebreaker question. Initiate a follow-up the next week or the next month. Initiate hospitality. It will sound something like going from, hey, I want to introduce myself. What is your name? Hey, how was your week? Hey, I wanted to follow up with you about what you shared with me last time. I looked into what you shared with me last time. I've been praying for you in this area. How's, how's this going? To, hey, I would love to share a meal with you. We would love to host you in our home. And then embrace everything that follows from that. Uh, embrace the imbalance, the lack of give and take. Embrace it. Embrace the lack of reciprocity. Embrace the, the lack of a fair division of labor. Embrace the risk of offense, rejection, incompatibilities. Embrace all the inefficiencies, all the moments where you feel like this, this could be a big waste of my time. And in doing that, embrace just how cross-like that is. Embrace how Christ-like that is. Embrace how one way that is, as God has been for you. And hope in something better than success. Hope in your Christ-likeness. Hope in how following Jesus will indeed make you more and more like him. More and more like the Son of God. That is your reward. Don't hope in people's response or reaction or reciprocating to you. Hope in Christ-likeness. And he will not fail you there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, turn our eyes to Jesus and uh, Lord, put our hope entirely in him. Lord, may we be a community that's built up uh, in a healthy way not because we're living according to our preferences, our likes or dislikes, but according to the will of our King and our Shepherd, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we, we long, we long to respond to this great self-forgetful service He has shown us. And Lord, uh, strengthen us even at the Lord's table now uh, with His spiritual presence now being with us and as we partake of this meal by faith, Lord, send us. Send us to go and identify and initiate, begin to draw near and to draw in. We pray that you would do this by your spirit living inside us, by your power indwelling us, not through us. But may all of this be done uh, through Christ uh, inside us. We pray this in his name. Amen.